0: This will be the session on Burma, Myanmar, with Matthew, Walton, and others. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, you'll notice immediately that I am sort of in between voices at the moment, and, and so I'm going to do my best to kind of make this through in a reasonable way. Um, should my voice peter out, my two colleagues will, uh, will will take up and have more than enough to say. Thank you all very much for coming. and I. I recognize that we don't have uh, any sort of amplification here, so hopefully, I know, I know we are all capable of projecting, but that will also mean that um, we'll call on you to be extra special, attentive, because I think sound really carries in this room. Um, so thank you for coming uh, to this panel. Thank you to to Liz and Oxpeace for the opportunity to put together a panel on Burma, uh, Myanmar. and. You know, um, what, what I'm gonna do is I'll briefly introduce um, our panelists and also um, myself and I'll, I'll leave it to each of my colleagues to give a little bit more background on, on their own research and, and their own positions. Um, none of us really come from a peace studies background um, and, and that's obviously not uh, a requirement for, for being here today and I think one thing that we're really excited uh, to engage in is, is to talk a little bit about our research on Burma, Myanmar, um, our, our understanding of the conflict there, uh, conflicts there from different perspectives, and to hear from many of you who are peace scholars, who are peace practitioners, to kind of, uh, you know, at this, this moment in this transition that, that seemed so full of hope two years ago and, and, and seems increasingly uh, uh, desperate um, uh, today, to kind of hear your thoughts from your, your experiences in other places. Um, so, I'm going to begin. Uh, my name is Matt Walton. I am the Aung San Suu Kyi Senior Research Fellow in Modern Burmese Studies at St. Anthony's College here at Oxford. And I'll be talking about um, uh, religion and conflict. And, and So, my main areas of research are uh, Buddhism and politics. I'm a political theorist, so I work on um, Burmese Buddhist political thought. Also on... Um, on ethnic conflict and ethnic identity uh, in the country. So I'll talk for a bit. I'll turn it over to my colli- colleague um, Patrick Meehan, who is a PhD candidate um, at SOAS uh, in the Department of International Development, yeah, Development Studies. Development but. Studies. <laughs> right, um, whose expertise is really on um, sort of ethnicity and ethnic uh, armies and the drug trade uh, and the kind of intersection of all of those things at, in conflict in, uh, in northeastern Burma in particular. And then we'll, we'll end <coughs> with Dr. Kinma Maji, uh who is the Aung San Suu Kyi uh, Junior Research Fellow in Gender and Burma um, at the International Gender Studies Center at Lady Margaret Hall. Uh, and then of course we'll, we'll open it up to, to questions. So before I get into the religion specific thing, I will start with a really brief overview of the kind of transition in Myanmar to today. After almost five decades of international isolation and repressive rule by a succession of military governments, Myanmar announced that it would begin a gradual transition to democracy with a handover of power to a quasi-civilian government in March 2011. Since that time, we've had some really amazing, unexpected uh, reforms, albeit from very low expectations. Uh, The government has released many political prisoners, Uh, they've relaxed a lot of restrictions on the press, very draconian restrictions, they've passed laws that have allowed for the formation of unions, for peaceful demonstrations, Uh, they have moved to secure ceasefires with most of the ethnic armed groups, Um, and they've lifted a number of uh, restrictions on opposition political parties. But there are worrying trends that that remain and we've seen these sort of come to the fore over the last few uh, years and in particularly over the last few months. So there are political prisoners who are still left in jail and more are created almost daily when activists are arrested for protesting uh, about land reforms and and land rights and and economic and and environmental uh, developments. Um, the associated uh, land grabs and environmental destructions that, that are associated with the economic development program in the country are becoming increasingly problematic, an increasing source of, of conflict that, that intersects with religious violence, with ethnic violence, as I think we'll, we'll hear throughout today. Although there have been a number of important reforms there's barely even been an acknowledgement, let alone uh, fixing of of the institutional barriers that remain uh, to reform. So we're talking about constitution, uh, constitutional change, we're talking about structural change in terms of the government and the legal system and the the economic system. Um, Even though the government has pursued a number of ceasefire uh, agreements, even during the ceasefire talks that they're engaged with right now, the Burmese military has been attacking ethnic armies in, in Kachin state and in Shan state, which leads many people to believe that they're kind of disingenuous in in their uh, statements about peace. And even though many of the restrictions on the press have been relaxed, uh, a number of journalists have been arrested recently, and there's a great deal of confusion regarding uh, conflicting laws on on press freedom, um, you know, and and the government kind of saying one thing and, and doing another. So, despite the dramatic reforms that are bringing new freedoms to the political environment in mostly urban areas, these reforms have yet to improve the lives of the country's vast rural population, much of which which exists in a world that's far removed from the center, both geographically and psychologically. So these challenges then have translated into ongoing and enhanced feelings of anxiety, cynicism, and uncertainty for many of the people in the population decades of interethnic ethnic fighting and inter-religious tension in an authoritarian context in which many ethnic and religious groups have lived, removed from each other, separated by violent conflict or from government restrictions on movement, these have taken a toll and uh, religious bias and misinformation, misunderstanding of, of uh, other religions and ethnicities is common. And so you've got in some cases new communal tensions, in some cases revived or exacerbated communal tensions that I would argue are really caused by the uncertainty of of this transition. So religiously this really came to the fore in in June 2012 when there were riots in western Rakhine state, uh, in in, in the western part of, of Myanmar. And these started out initially as fighting between Buddhist Rakhines. And Muslim Rohingya, right? uh, two distinct kind of ethnic and religious groups, uh, and 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 it wasn't necessarily surprising. The Rohingya, as as many of you uh, are probably familiar, uh, the UN has has called them the sort of the, one of the most put upon ethnic or religious identity groups in in the world, and they have very few friends or allies. But it was kind of surprising to a number of people when in March 2013, the religious violence started to spread to other areas of the country, and it became a sort of Buddhist Muslim, anti-Muslim framing more generally, not just the Rohingya Muslim, Muslims in Rakhine state, but uh, Chinese Muslims, Burmese Muslims, right, people who had very much been a part of, of the Burmese state. There's been sporadic violence since then uh, in in areas of uh, sort of central Myanmar and also again in Rakhine State. Uh, two months ago there, was, there were reports of a massacre of uh, Rohingya villagers um, that was led by security forces and, uh, and local actors. Uh, this massacre hasn't yet been confirmed, although the, the, the presence of violence there had been, has been confirmed. Um, but the massacre hasn't yet been confirmed uh, and um, there's a lot of dispute. The government has denied this. Leading on after that massacre, uh, there have been protests and violence against aid agencies in Western Rakhine State, uh, first against Doctors Without Borders, then against Malteser, and this has led to the withdrawal of pretty much all of the Western aid agencies or foreign aid agencies in in Rakhine State, uh, which of course, unsurprisingly, has led to a health crisis because the Myanmar government can't handle it. The other thing that's kind of exacerbated the the religious identity uh, conflict uh, has been the census going on this this year, and there hasn't been a census in Myanmar since twenty sorry since 1983, so almost uh, more than thirty years. Even the 1983 census uh, has statistics that uh, we probably can't trust. Uh, The last. Possibly accurate census might have been in the 1930s, and even that was really only partial. Right? There's never been a really good accounting of, of what's been happening there, and and I'll just speak to the, the census and its problems with regard to religion briefly, because it has a whole host of of, of problems that uh, that, it, that UNFPA, that has been the main advisor, has, has generally ignored and/or made worse. Uh, the the Myanmar government has. Um, has stated on repeated occasions that the Rohingya are not a recognized ethnic group in the country. They refuse to even use the word Rohingya, even, even denying the, the uh, ability of people, Rohingya people to self identify, instead using the term Bengali. Um, what they said, the agreement or the compromise that was reached for the uh, census was that there would be no official Rohingya category. That, um, you know, that, that people could choose but they could choose the other category and then self-identify and then that qualitative data would be sort of worked in. Two or three days before the census was due to, to start the government did an about-face and said not only is there no Rohingya category if anybody says Rohingya we're not going to write that down and we're uh, telling the, the enumerators for the census don't write that down either and, and what ended up happening in this case was um, a was the census enumerators would come to a house and, and the first question that they would ask if the family looked or seemed Muslim or Rohingya they would ask what their ethnic identity was and if they said Rohingya they'd pack their things up and then move on to the next house not even counting them you know, under, under a different name. Uh, so so the, the the tension surrounding this, right and, and, and the the refusal of, of many Rohingya people to, um, to accept this Bengali labeling. Um, and, and the insistence on most Myanmar people to deny the existence of, of the, even the name Rohingya uh, has really exacerbated these, these tensions. So I want to speak just a little bit about the dynamics of religious conflict in, in the country, some of the narratives that we've seen emerging, some of the justifications uh, that are there. Then I want to go on to talk a, a little bit about some of the responses in the country, mostly from, from Buddhists and, and and from some Muslims in the country. And, and then I want to end up by talking about uh, what I see as some of the I don't want to use the word weakness, the the incomplete nature of some of these responses and the ways in which uh, responses to violence and and discourses about peace and, and structures that could build to peace will need to respond to dynamics and elements of this conflict that they haven't yet been responding to. Hopefully that will become clear as I I talk through this. So there are a few elements of this that are really difficult uh, to to kind of understand and one of them is the challenge of separating out anti-Muslim activities from pro-Buddhist activities. Most of the people who are affiliated with the pro-Buddhist nationalist 969 movement have gone to great lengths to say listen we're not anti-Muslim despite the presence of a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric in their pamphlets and, and, and their sermons but they say we're just doing good Buddhism we're protecting uh, Buddhism we're promoting Buddhism and and they do also in addition to distributing pamphlets and things like that that are against Muslims uh, and spreading rumors and that they, they have teaching programs that are designed to uh, teach young children about Buddhism and th- a lot of their rhetoric speaks to the anxiety that a lot of Burmese Buddhists experience right now regarding the perpetuation of Buddhism in the country and and the the sustaining of Buddhist morality in the face of this opening up to the outside world, the the, the fast increases, in uh, the quick increases in uh, technology and uh, sort of modern lifestyles. So this idea that, that that these movements are not anti-Muslim, but the, in fact pro-Buddhist, uh, is very compelling and very difficult to refute. There are also compelling political considerations, and 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 what what many people have argued are, are the the reasons why uh, people like Dōan Sanchi, the you know the democracy icon, uh, for whose um, in 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 honor of whom both Kinmamaji and my positions are named. Uh, So she is kind of stuck in the middle of these political considerations where she wants to be president, she wants her party to to win the elections in 2015, and it's a huge risk to alienate the Buddhist majority by speaking out in defense of a a tiny, um, Uh, Muslim minority that has very few allies. So it's not just Dasu in this case, very few, if any, major political figures have have been willing to speak out. And when they have spoken out, they've spoken out in very kind of ambivalent uh, terms. There's also an ambivalence about the role of monks in politics, and and you've probably all uh, seen the, the the famous Time magazine cover with the the infamous monk U Rathu, who's one of the leaders of the anti-Muslim nationalist movement, uh, they called the face of Buddhist terror, um, and there was a strong reaction in Myanmar against that, but. Um, there's generally a great deal of ambivalence in Myanmar about the role of monks in politics Uh, and and monks are supposed to of course be detached and and studying the scriptures and not involved in worldly things and, and, and this is a very different situation than in a place like Sri Lanka where monks have created political parties and run for office and assassinated prime ministers right where there's a culture of, well not that that part is acceptable, but a culture of political participation In Myanmar, the one gray area for monks to participate is in defense of Buddhism, is in the propagation of Buddhism. And so when they couch all of their actions in these terms, uh, you know, it's really hard for anybody, for lay people to, uh, lay people in particular, to find ground on which to criticize them because this is what they are supposed to be doing. So we've seen a number of responses in, in Myanmar that, that have been encouraging. Of course there's, there's interfaith dialogue. There had been interfa- some, some limited interfaith dialogue happening uh, even prior to 2012, although it was, it was very rare. Um, you know, this is good, this is an important part of the response. Uh, although uh, one of the concerns that, that interfaith dialogue practitioners and, and organizers have expressed is that this still remains preaching to the choir. Right. these are people who are already uh oriented towards a kind of interfaith understanding and and they haven't yet really figured out a good way of of reaching out beyond that right to the people who aren't going to come to an interfaith dialogue meeting there's also a real danger with uh with perceptions of interfaith dialogue and, and we've seen this um, you know in the west and in, in the islamic world and and other places where there are fears from people that Interfaith dialogue is just a veneer for sort of secular humanist universalism that's seeking to dumb down and, and centralize all every uh, religion, and, and so we've we've heard that that concern, right? That that in, from from Myanmar Buddhists that interfaith dialogue really means breaking down what's what's unique about Buddhism and what's important about Buddhism, and, and Muslims in the country have, have said the same thing. Their efforts for interfaith understanding particularly uh, led in in recent months by youth groups uh, that have organized and, and taken their multi-faith groups to different houses of worship right to, to, to um, you know some do some interviews and discussions and and just try to break down those those uh, barriers of ignorance or misunderstanding um, there have been movements for more transparency about religious practice and religious teaching this has come particularly from the Muslim community that actually sort of uh, urban uh, Muslim leaders have themselves been kind of shocked at what, has, what they find is being preached in, in mosques, and so they've moved to have more transparency about what's being preached uh, and, and, and what, what's taught in, in uh, schools and things like that. There's the, the development of a, of a limited kind of peace-building discourse from within Buddhism. There are some monks that are doing this. It's also in concert with support from, from the outside. I've been involved in this as a Buddhist practitioner as well, but there are concerns that this wouldn't be seen as authentic, right? That there there real res, there's real resistance among Burmese Buddhists uh, that even with regard to other Theravada Buddhist countries like Sri Lanka and Thailand, that, that Burmese Buddhism is something that's different, right? And that they have preserved the purity. Teachings and so there's there's a risk that any of these collaborations uh, with Buddhists outside, you know, run the risk of, of being seen as foreign and unauthentic. Probably the most uh, reassuring and the most positive. Uh, Campaign started just last month in April, and this is called Banzaga, uh, w- which translates as flower speech. This is a campaign to actively promote speech that protects and fuels a kind of peaceful coexistence. Uh, it was started by a sort of a group of, of NGOs, civil society organizations, led particularly by a young man named Nepon Lot, who's uh, a Burma's most famous internet political prisoner. He was a blogger who was a political prisoner for several years. So this campaign has opposed hate speech that attacks people or groups on the basis of race, religion, gender, sexual orientation. They've been distributing pamphlets and stickers, launching a Facebook campaign to combat hate speech online. Um, And and what I find appealing and, and encouraging about this is that not only is it a positive approach that encourages people to use a certain kind of speech, It is. It's also very wary of invoking the discourse of hate speech, which it doesn't necessarily have a lot of resonance in in Myanmar. Number one, but number two, our most common responses to hate speech are to legislate and to restrict speech. And democratic activists in Myanmar are are understandably very wary of of that. Um, So we've seen these campaigns, but one of the concerns, and this is where I'll kind of end up here, is. I think one of the things that, that I've alluded to that's motivating a lot of this, and, and that, that to many Buddhists who aren't inclined to have anti-Muslim views or to endorse violence, it, it, it can be a very compelling reason, is this anxiety over the persistence of Buddhism in general, or the persistence of a word called the sasana. The sasana refers to not just uh, the monkhood, not just the Buddhist texts, but the, the very existence of the Buddhist community and the Buddhist teachings. Now, these are, according to Buddhist teaching, the, the Sasana in Buddhism itself is fundamentally impermanent. it will not last forever, it will go away at some point. but it is centrally important because without these teachings, enlightenment is impossible, right Better rebirth uh, in, in future lives is impossible so There's a prediction that Buddhism, of course, will not last forever and many Burmese believe that we're already in the decline period, right? So essentially this idea that you're fighting a losing battle, Buddhism is going to go out, but you need to orient all of your efforts towards maintaining it and maintaining this, this Buddhist community. This anxiety is fundamental to Theravada Buddhism. It, it's a primary motivating factor, both in a positive sense, right? In motivating people to better moral practice and, and to being better Buddhist and to propagating Buddhism. But in moments of change or anxiety or uncertainty, it elicits, elicits a kind of offensive or, 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 or negative um, uh, motivation in defense of Buddhism or in defense of the Sasana. We've seen this in the colonial period uh, in response to communism, economic development, uh, the incursion of, of modern values. So, I think this is the rhetoric that underlies much of um, of, of the anti-Buddhist sorry anti-Muslim pro-Buddhist nationalism in the country and it suggests that merely responding to uh, social, economic, political, legal conditions isn't enough through policy. It also suggests that responses that are rooted in doctrine are insufficient in responding to this, right? Because none of the anti-Muslim monks are really making any reference to doctrine in justifying um, th- their, uh, you know, their actions or the rumors or, or, or any of this rhetoric. So what happens is, what I would argue needs to happen is the development of a discourse that responds directly to these, these, uh, these narratives that occur on a level that isn't doctrine, isn't practice, isn't just socio-political uh, uh, causes, but is some sort of cultural, traditional hybrid um, you know, that, that occurs there, that exists within that space. So, so this suggests that you know, that these arguments aren't just rooted in doctrine, but they're rooted in, in these broader cultural understandings, traditional interpretations of Buddhism that don't make reference to doctrine or texts, or global framings uh, of, of Muslims or other groups. So these arguments appeal to a Buddhist identity. They appeal to the centrality of that identity in a Burmese civic identity. Um, And it's unlikely that doctrinal responses are going to be effective in in halting the expansion of violence. So a comprehensive response to Myanmar's current religious strife is going to require, in addition, those political, economic, legal policy reforms that address the underlying insecurities of the transition. But they're going to have to be complemented by a better understanding of the ways in which these arguments of anti-Muslim monks and leaders resonate with Myanmar's Buddhist population. And this understanding, I think, is going to have to inform a more direct refutation of those cultural frames or a transformation, of an alternative articulation of those cultural frames that are currently invoked to justify violence. And that's going to have to be rooted in the logic and reasoning of of a sort of Burmese-Buddhist worldview. Thanks very much.